welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Ru Chater. Episode 6 with Sensi Graves. I'm back. Very sorry for my absence for a little while. Um, as ever, best laid plans go completely haywire. I think in the last intro, I was explaining I was off to Ireland for six weeks, um, camping in the van, and I'd have loads of time sitting around just putting podcasts together that I've already recorded. As it turned out, um, half of the UK kite surfing population decided to go to Ireland as well. So my time was mostly spent drinking Guinness in Spillane's pub and catching up with old friends, um, which was great fun, but left it rather difficult to get my work done. And I managed to get a kite surf magazine published and a mountain bike magazine published, but failed miserably on getting any podcasts out the window. Anyway, I've been pushed into getting this episode out a little bit by a deadline, as I promised the interviewee, Sensi, that I would have it out um, while she was running a campaign for her sustainable swimsuit collection, which is still running right now. So I'll put a link to that in the description and you can go and check it out. And I'm sure Sensi will be shouting about it over on her channels too. Anyway, Sensi's a really interesting character. She's been a friend of mine for a couple of years. One the pioneers of park riding in the sport and I don't want to talk too much about her in the intro because I've had a bit of feedback that sometimes I say a little bit too much and it spoils it because you know what's coming up so she's an interesting character she's a businesswoman entrepreneur we talk a lot about that and a little bit about her history within the sport and also have some interesting conversations about how women are portrayed within the sport of kiteboarding which obviously with the whole bikini question and sensi running a swimsuit company i couldn't help but get involved in discussing with her there's lots that we talk about and it's a really interesting chat and i hope you really enjoy it sit back relax and enjoy this week's episode this morning it's still just about this morning i'm still in hood river although as usual you'll be listening to this very late and i'll be somewhere else by the time you actually get to listen to this but i'm sat with a young lady by the name of sensi graves um who i've known for a few years now in a personal capacity but via email probably since i've been in the industry because she's one of kiteboarding's most famous female kiteboarders i would say perhaps and we thought it'd be fun just to sit down and have a chat she's famous not just for her kite surfing but also for her business skills she runs the um, sensi bikinis company which aims to make bikinis that don't fall off women when they're doing action sports which i'm sure a lot of ladies listening to this can appreciate so sensi first question to you how did you get into like the water sports scene like where did you grow up where have you come from how did it end up landing on your doorstep yeah i love sharing this story because everyone's kiteboarding story is so different and it's just funny the looking back at how things happen in your life and you're like i could have taken this completely different path and ended up somewhere totally opposite and outside the realm of water sports but i actually grew up in northern california okay so semi-close to where we are now in hood river although the U.S. is a giant country, and yes. it's still 12 hours to where I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a similar climate, similar flora and fauna, and that's why I landed in Hood River. And were you on the coast down there or not? Uh, it's an hour inland, so not really. Okay, I'm in the so... Redwoods. I grew up in a really tiny town. We had 300 people in my town. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I had a class of, my graduating class was seven. No way. Yeah, I know. And so my joke is always, valedictorian. Like, yeah. I was valedictorian of class, but like, you know, it was one of seven. People, so yeah. <laughs> good. But um, I had three brothers. I have three brothers and we were always super athletic, competitive. 
brawl within five years. And so we would play two on two everything and we'd yeah. just be really, really competitive. So and what sort of sports were you into at that younger age when you were living in a town with 300 people? <laughs> like I can imagine team sports and there's only seven of you in your year aren't very practical. We had to convince everyone to play basketball so we could have a basketball team. <laughs> but <laughs> I was uh, on the basketball team. I, play, I did track. Yeah. I played volleyball. We did have a volleyball team. Once again, it was like, okay, everybody in the whole high school needs to yeah, play. You're in. There's no no question of not making the no. team. You're all in the cup. <laughs> Everybody's in. Um, but I didn't do... We I wakeboarded growing up and snowboarded. I was fortunate okay. that my family traveled quite a bit. Yeah. So we were able to go snowboarding six hours away, take various vacations, and we had a wakeboarding boat. So you had a bit of an action sports background mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Which I'm so thankful for just because... Even having any board sports skills really lends itself to so many things in life. I mean, surfing now, I love surfing. Didn't grow up surfing, but that's by far the hardest board sport. Yeah, that is but, hard. We had a conversation yeah. about that recently, <laughs> didn't we? I think by email. Oh, like, yeah. Is, surfing is hard. Like, I was trying to convince Ruth. Really like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you were saying that kiteboarding is really hard, and I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> There's way harder sports to learn. But yeah, uh, it's anyway. True. But yeah, that sports sports background totally has helped with everything. And then. Um, I've always wanted to live by the ocean, and so I actually went to school in San Diego, okay. so Southern California. Yeah, and that's right down near the Mexico border, isn't it? Yeah, there, yeah. actually, so. when in college, go across the border to Tijuana and party. Uh, go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm telling everybody on the podcast that, but anyway, that's behind me in the past. And so, moved down there to go to college, and was in the ocean a bit, but really not that much, because I lived, like, I had, I remember being in my apartment and having this nine-foot surfboard acting like I was going to go surfing and having to carry it down three flights of stairs and get it out in my car, drive to the beach. And between classes and going to Tijuana, (laughs) I didn't surf as much as I really had wanted to or intended. And so I really didn't start surfing until I moved to North Carolina. So in between my freshman and sophomore year of college, so relatively late, but kiteboarding is such a young sport, my dad went out to North Carolina and learned to kite. And then he brought my three brothers and I out. And I out and we're like, we're going to learn a kiteboard. And he had all these DVDs from real water sports. And I was like, what is this sport? I've never heard of this. I have no never idea. Seen it, never no seen idea it. of it. Yeah. And what no year concept. are we talking now? Like 2007. 2007. So sport's been around for a while, but it's mm-hmm. still kind of in its infancy-ish, mm-hmm. I guess. I guess the advantage is that you'd have had like bow kites to learn on and things that sort yeah. of relaunched, yep. but then still very early days in their technological advancement. Yeah. So still quite a tricky time to be learning. Yeah. My first kites were actually the Nash, the like the Sigma oh, one. the Sigma one. Yeah. So the Helix, was it? Or the Colt? The Colt was the, the Colt. The Colt was the learning one or the more beginnery one. Yeah. And then the Helix was the high performance one. I probably had the Colt. You probably had the Colt. It was a great kite. I used to love the Colt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we, I saw one on a beach in Sardinia recently and I was taking really? photos of it and this guy thought I was taking the piss. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, no. I had this kite. It's an awesome kite. It's a great Fantastic. kite. That's why it was the same colors as well. Oh, I like the hot going. pink. I remember the hot pink and the green. The green and, and yellow. Green. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they I wonder were if cool. my dad still has those. Well, that would be funny. You never know. Good thing to dig out. Yeah. So, what was it like when you first got there? And so, first got go? there, and because I had this extensive sports background and just was very athletic, um, I remember getting it pretty quickly. I remember being having challenges with it, and we spent a week out there, and I think we just ended up having three days of wind, but still it was in the water um, quite a lot, and. I remember the first time I tried to do a, a water start with the board, dive, dove the kite and got right up. And that is, 
I mean, relatively rare. Like usually people kind of fall over. I mean, after that, it was very much tumultuous. <laughs> but I don't think I rode very far. But I remember it's being like, whoa, that was awesome. And so we kept in touch with Real through that next two-year period and actually was fortunate enough to go to the BVIs a couple times. So yep. I, I learned to kite in that season in 2007. But then you're still going back to college. Went back to college. No kiteboarding happened. Yeah. Because I couldn't do anything. I was like not pursuing it. And then we went in that winter to the BVIs with Real. So I spent a week on the catamaran doing the whole driving around Anagata and going to all the beautiful places. And was kiting that whole time. Pretty good start to your kiteboarding oh career, gosh. isn't it? Like, you know, most people are just on some ropey beach somewhere, just, yeah. you know, slogging it out. No, I'm just cruising around with the catamaran. Oh, and we were so lucky. We were so lucky. So we actually did that for a couple seasons. So then did a whole year of not kiteboarding, went back to another BVI strip, um, did a whole year of not kiteboarding, did one more BVI strip. I think we did three. Yeah, this sounds so makes me sound such a like a <laughs> it's kind of douchey. But. Well, that's all right. It's fine not remembering things. I don't remember what I did yesterday most of the time. So it's like, yeah, I did that really. I don't How many times did I go to the BBS? Yeah. Um, and then at that point, I was staying up wind. Yeah. I'd only kited for probably three weeks total at that point, but was able to ride up wind. And this is spread over like a three year period. Yeah. So it's a real like drawn out yeah. learning process. Or maybe two years, because I moved to North Carolina in 2009. So that's quite so hard. Years. That's quite hard to sort of not have that constant, you know, like, oh. you know, if you're snowboarding, which yeah. you would have done when you go on a week's snowboarding holiday, yeah. you kind of, by the end of the, the beginning of the week, you suck at it. Yeah. By the end of the week, you're sort of starting to get it dialed, and then you don't do it for a year. And then when you go back again, you're like still like you're maybe not quite as rubbish as that first week, but you're still pretty ropey. And then, and it's just such a slow process to get anywhere yeah. with it. So that must have been quite tough to sort oh, of doing yeah. that with kiteboarding. Yeah, like, and I wasn't, I still wasn't very into it. I loved it doing it. I was like, this sport is rad. But I remember just not. I was in college, and I had so many other priorities, and San Diego wasn't really conducive to. I mean, it's pretty light wind down there. Yeah. And actually, it's a funny story because when Brandon and I started dating, he came and visited me in college and he kiteboarded in San Diego before I did. Oh, no <laughs> like he went out one day while I was in class and I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> I haven't even done this yet. But yeah, it's not a very windy place, right? Not a very so windy it's... place. And I just wasn't that motivated to do it. So actually in 2009, though, we did the BVI trip for the second time. And Stan Radov, who's now in Charleston, uh, runs his own kite shop, was the head coach at Real at the time. And he was on that trip and he was looking for coaches. And I think he was talking more to my brothers than to me, but he was like, yeah, we're looking for coaches. You guys should come out. And I was like, that sounds like an amazing summer job. Sign me up. So I'm I, in. <laughs> I no kiteboarding, really. I can barely go up with. I want to be a coach. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> Fake and it till so, you make it. Let's yeah, make it happen. Totally. And so I actually flew out um, in March to North Carolina to do like the coaches tryouts and met the whole crew. And then they hired my older brother and I, and we moved out, drove across the entire U.S. out of college once we finished the season and went to uh, North Carolina in June and then spent the whole season out there. And from that point on, I was really kiteboarding every single day, dreaming kiteboarding, like totally immersed in the scene, started riding boots because that's what people were doing out there. And just very much like, whoa, this sport is awesome. Met Brandon at that time as well. My boyfriend, Brandon Scheid. And yeah, went back, graduated from college, and then moved back out to North Carolina. And that was it. Yeah, and that was it. That has shaped my entire 10 years 
sense. And how did your how did your brothers get on when they were learning? You said you were guys were really competitive yeah. growing up. So was there like a fierce like who's better than who, or was it not so much with the clipboard? I don't remember thing? being it so much that way. Now I'm all, I'm the best of the four yeah, of us. So, yeah. so you're like, well, I'm better than all yeah. of you, so it doesn't yeah. really matter. And my older brother, um, who had come to coach with me, is, is pretty good, but he doesn't kite that much. He actually lives in Hood River as well. Okay. Um, but yeah, I don't remember it being that much competitive. It's more just this camaraderie with the learning because you're swallowing tons of water and just kind of being like, oh my gosh, that was crazy. What did we do? And just having this bonding experience over a new sport. And that's what I think is the best part about kiteboarding. I don't know if you feel that way, but it's just like there's so much stimulation and you can go so many places that it's just always exhilarating and yeah. new and just keeps it really there's always awesome. something fresh to do and there's always mm-hmm. different people to meet and different and people to talk to yeah well now the wing <laughs> we can discuss That's that okay, <laughs> <laughs> we can discuss that later maybe so all that's funny is everyone wants to talk about wings at the moment it's really oh, funny. No. But then last year when i was recording this series uh, and i was doing season one everyone just wanted to talk about surf boiling and so it was like you'd be chatting to his cut was oh no i want to talk about surf boiling surf boiling is where it's at and then now like the wings coming in but so that you're, you're living and working in North Carolina mm-hmm. and you're, you know, at real and mm-hmm. totally immersed in the scene. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're exploding on magazine pages. Mm-hmm. How was that transition? Mm-hmm. You know, at what point did you sort of get into that? And I guess for people listening, you know, you've always been, um, I guess, affiliated with the whole boot scene mm-hmm. and riding kickers and sliders and doing that side of the sport. So where's that transition come from being someone who, can just about stay up wind, gets a coaching job at real, and then is suddenly here. Like that seems like a strange yeah. path to go down. Yeah, and that I started kiteboarding, like I said, relatively late. Learned when I was 20 years old. But it was so much immersed from when I actually started coaching and was in the water every single day. And hence the reason I started my bikini company. And like it was just very much like, okay, this is what I'm doing. Kiteboarding is is now my new passion. I'm just following this. But with the competing, it was actually a stretch because, well, competing and then doing the magazine things. I, I did communications in college. Okay, that's what you started. Yeah. And so I've always loved writing and I wanted to bring value and be in the kite scene and, and start start kind of writing as my career because I was like, oh, I love writing. This is something I kind of can see doing. And so just as I slowly started making connections in the industry, after that first or that second year of coaching at Real, once I graduated college, we spent the winter in Maui, so moved out there, and um, I think I wrote one of my first articles on like going to Kite Beach for the first time and how it was like such an iconic kite surfing place, and there was so much history there of kiteboarding that it was really cool for me as a, a super newbie, one year into the kite scene, how impactful this was. And we went yeah. out there with Sam Modeski and Craig Cunningham, so the four of us, Brandon, Sam, and, and Craig and I lived out there for the winter. And those guys were had been in kiteboarding for a lot longer than I have, and we're just so excited to be there yeah. because of all the history of Maui. So it was the first time for those guys as well. Yes. Yeah. And so, so we just... all four were like, "Wow, this is cool!" And so it really just gave me this insider look of, "Wow, this is all the history of kiteboarding that's here," and just building up the community and talking to people. I mean, that's another one of my favorite things is all the rad people that are in the sport and how supportive everyone is, and just what an awesome community. So it was really. Touching on that and immersing in that, that I was like, ah, uh-huh, this is cool. I want to write some articles around it. And then I did a good job with it. And I thought that um, my skills lent itself well to that. And I thought, well, maybe I can, 
at that point I was not coaching, so I needed to make money. And I was, yeah. I was starting my swimsuit business as well, but that was obviously That's, not making yeah. any money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like, okay, how can I, you know, build up the, the name and I want to have this line of, of products, but who is Sensi Graves? We need to start telling that story as well. Um, but I have to say that it was very much, I didn't want my face really in front of everything because I felt like I wasn't good enough. I had only been kiteboarding for a short period of time. I could barely do a Rayleigh. I actually, I was learning a Rayleigh for that in the yeah. winter valley. I remember seeing photos of me just like, oh, like trying to do Rayleigh. <laughs> Not quite getting it. Not quite yeah. getting it. And so um, actually, I didn't want to be the face of anything. So I thought kind of more riding behind the scenes was yeah. really the, the way to go. And then um, with the scene of Boots going back to Rio and coaching again for another season, that was what it was all about. And hitting sliders was really the scene. And I loved that. I loved hitting sliders. And I, I, I felt way more connected to that than freestyle. I think I was just better at that than freestyle. So yeah. that made it easier to like. Take the path of least resistance. <laughs> yes, Don't exactly. kill yourself trying to learn a back mode if you can just oh. rock out and do something cool on yeah. a kicker and a slider. And so that um, was really just like the, okay, this is what I like to do. But from there to actually competing was a huge stretch because I was not that good. And I felt like I don't deserve to be here. Um, at that time, there was Susie Mai, Bruna, yeah. um, Gisella, Gisella right Lulu, Lulu yeah. Roman. They were all competing and they were obviously way ahead of me. And uh, and was I, it the Triple S, the first event that you were competing in? Yeah. Or did you do some others? It was just straight yeah, into Triple, Triple S. S. Well, actually, you know what? The year before I did the Hood Jam. Or not the Hood Jam. At that time, it was Roshan Throwdown. A Roshan Throwdown, mm-hmm. wasn't it? And so mm-hmm. how was that doing your first event? Like It was good. I remember uh, because I'm super competitive and I wasn't that good, but I remember just being like just very stressed about it and wanting to do super well and not ending up placing that well deservedly, but just being pissed because I didn't do well <laughs> because that's my nature. I've gotten over that at this point, but like, why didn't I win? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's obvious why I didn't win because yeah. I'm not at that level I'm yet, but still, good. why didn't yeah, I win? Exactly. So competing's always been kind of a, a struggle for me because you have these high expectations that you put on yourself and that you want to do well. And I've always, I always want to win, but there's just so much that goes into it. Yeah. Makes it tricky. And it's an, it's an interesting one because a lot of guys are inherently quite competitive, Mm -hmm. but you know, a lot of girls aren't, Mm -hmm. it seems. And you know, you look at the amount of guys entering competitions versus the amount of girls entering competitions. And there seems that there's a lot of that I'm not good enough exactly, and I'm not good enough. So I yeah. shouldn't then do it. And so that's quite good that you overcame that, yeah. you know, maybe perhaps knowing you're not going good enough, but you're going, you know what, I'll just do it for the experience. Yeah. And so what if I'm cannon fodder for the, the pros yeah. and they're going to knock me out, but it's a good experience and I can get something positive out of that and enjoy mm-hmm. it. But that must've been quite a tough thing to do. It was because it was really like, okay, I need to put myself out there and try and I'm going to kick myself if I don't try. But it was still all the tumultuous inner feelings of, yeah, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve to be here. And you're really putting yourself out there. And that's been something I've had to get over my whole career because it started that way. And like now you're always kind of like the bars consistently raising and you're always having to move up and up and up. And even if you do well at one competition, you're like, okay, now there's a photo shoot coming up or now there's something else coming up. And just the not feeling good enough is something that is super limiting because it inhibits your want to try. Yeah. But for me, the want to try of, if I don't try, it's, 
I'm going to kick myself. Like I can't not try. So that's at least good. Yeah. But yeah. I can totally, it definitely is. Um, the comp, the competitive spirit has helped. And I actually get made fun of by a lot of my girlfriends. Like you're so competitive. <laughs> I'm like, well, sorry. <laughs> I'm like, always wanting to play games. I yeah. could be things, but I don't think that's not a bad thing. And I think that we can't hate on anyone for, being competitive or not. If you're not competitive, fine. That's totally fine. But if you are, that's use it to yeah. your advantage and acknowledge what your skill sets are to improve. make the most of it mm-hmm. and try and make it work. Yeah. But it definitely, definitely in the beginning, I remember my first triple S we, that was before there's prize money. So it was a lot more laid back, but yep. still all eyes are on you. And we would use, we would go out with everybody together, men and women. And I remember one session at KP where we're all hitting this kicker on the inside and at that point, I could do frontside threes, yep, little grabs. But I remember making tack attack out and coming in, and like I was just didn't know the flow. And Tom Court came up to me and started yelling at me, and being like, "Fancy, you're short tacking everybody. You need to go all the way out." <laughs> and like that burned into my mind as, "Oh, <laughs> whoops." Yeah, classic. You're ruining everyone's fun. Stop yeah. it. Get in Stop the short tacking everybody. And I was like, "Oh, okay." But oh, you're just well, that's a thing. So <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> normally I have really. this place to myself, and all you guys aren't here, and we're just yeah. getting it out after work. That's cool. And so, where were you? When when did you start? You know, because obviously you've done quite well in your career. So what period was it where you started going, okay, I'm, I feel like I've, I, I have a right to be here and I feel like I can get on that podium and start doing well? That's a great question. I'm not sure. I can't pinpoint the exact time that that happened. I think it's a constant evolution. And I felt that way in my business as well. I mean, it's a constant having to, and I try to teach this a lot through kind of just my personal social and just stuff that I've learned over the years because I feel like it's helpful for everybody that that amount of self-belief you always need to be building up because it opens up so many doors to try and things. And I think that's something that we all deal with is you don't always have self-confidence in what you're doing. If you're lucky, maybe you're born with a lot of natural confidence, but I think that comparison and social media is a big thing. And that doing something you've never done before, oftentimes we feel kind of this imposter syndrome or this just, I'm not good enough. And so, I think it's a constant thing that we're always having to work on. And like I said, in my business, I have to do that same thing because this is a path, a trajectory. I haven't, there's no finish line really, or like at what point am I successful? Quotes. I did quotes there for the podcasters. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's like, how do you measure success? Yeah. That's another point. You know, do you measure success by the amount of bikinis you've sold or by the amount of fun you're having doing it Mm -hmm. or by, you know, how many staff you're employing or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, that's a real, Mm -hmm. you know, I think people have a very different idea of the measure of success. Mm -hmm. I think there was a good book I read a little while ago and it was like, you know, you shouldn't measure your success by the size of your company or how Mm -hmm. big you've got. And it should just be whether you and the people in it are enjoying yourself. Exactly. And that's something totally I've learned because if you put any extrinsic parameter on how you value yourself or what confidence or how successful you feel, you're not going to have a great day because all these things happen to you in kiteboarding and in business where you can't control them and you, you can only respond internally. And so having, yeah, that's okay. Am I still enjoying this? Am I having a good time? If not, let me evaluate if I want to continue doing this or what I can do to change to have a good time. And that can be as easy as, 
saying, all right, I'm going to work on another trick because this yep. one's frustrating me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm just going to focus on something else in my business. But yeah, it's all about the enjoying the process because that's otherwise, what we have, right? Like yeah, there's... otherwise there's not much point to it. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I mean, we're going a bit off track now. We will get back on track <laughs> at some point. But, you know, talking about the, the confidence thing, you know, we've grown up in an era where social media has become huge, you know, mm-hmm. and you obviously have to use it to promote yourself and promote mm-hmm. your business and kiteboard and stuff like that. And I think that can be a massive confidence driller for for people and especially women. I don't think guys get it so much because, you know, we're not really that as focused on how we look or mm. how we're perceived. Maybe some guys are, but I think women definitely that's a real factor for them. Has that been, you know, as that's grown, has that been difficult to kind of manage? Definitely. And certainly with the bikini company, because you're projecting this image where it's very much a sex sells marketplace. And a lot of the bikini companies out there just show these really idealistic body types, buxom women, and just very specific body types, which look amazing, great, but it definitely causes all this comparison. And so in my company, it's it's really been a struggle to show, we wanna show all different types of, types of bodies, inclusivity with our marketing, and just show that it's okay, because it's not everyone, it's in fact a very small percentage that has this body type. And so instead of having something which is not aspirational, usually it's more comparative based or inducing, we want to just show really what the true (laughs) landscape of women's bodies look like and how it's just empowering to put yourself out there and try. And so that's, that's the driving factor behind a lot of the marketing in the bikini company is just what is confidence building for my customer? What's going to be empowering? And to me, that's showing people doing things and putting themselves out there and really being active and being in the outdoors because that's the lifestyle that I like to promote. And that's the lifestyle that I think is impactful for your soul and for how your body feels and looks because you're being active. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's that it's it's almost sort of part and parcel with kiteboarding, which is probably why we'll get onto this in a second when you even set up the business is that, you know, I remember coming from the UK, no one wears a bikini Mm. because it's freezing cold right so you're always in a wetsuit so you're down the beach and mm-hmm. back in the day there weren't many girls kiting but now there's absolutely loads of girls kiting it's fantastic but everyone's in a wetsuit so it doesn't have that sort of stigma of oh, i'm wearing a bikini but then we spend a lot of time in cabarete um and we spend months there and it's kind of so hot that you know you don't really want to be wearing a wetsuit or anything and so everyone's wearing a bikini and then that you know has issues for people who've got different body types mm-hmm. and if you know, the kite boarders are promoting it and the magazines are promoting this one particular image and that's a really negative impact for women involved in the sport. And so yeah. I think it's something that, you know, we all need to take a bit of ownership of and be careful mm-hmm. of and try and make sure that we're not sort of promoting this one sort of side of things. Mm-hmm. I remember years ago, there was a period where a lot of pro riders would have girls in their videos just prancing around because I think it was it Andre who did a video and the thumbnail was a chick in a bikini and of course it blew up on YouTube and then everyone's like oh that's how you get hundreds of thousands of views just have a chick in the thumbnail so then you know Tom Court was really rife at it Chris Bobrick is terrible at it (laughs) you know and it's just like you're just projecting this image of a woman should just be on the beach doing nothing prancing around and we took a standpoint on it which we didn't actually publicly talk about because we didn't want to sort of set a cat amongst the pigeons, but we said, okay, we're not going to publish any videos that just have women in bikinis in them. And we're also not going to use the bikini shot thumbnail in our social media to get the views because at the time we were, mm. and it was like, you know, it was great. We're getting all this traffic. And then I was like, you know, what, what image are we portraying here? And mm-hmm. is this a rabbit hole? We really want to go down yeah. as a company because for us as a magazine, it's totally inclusive. We're not aiming it at like the pro riders or anyone. We're aiming it at everyone. 
So we took this standpoint, we had lots of discussions about it, and I wanted to shout about it, and Mary was a bit like, no, I don't think you should say anything, I think you just quietly do it. And if riders continue, then just say, look, this is why we're not publishing your videos. So we did that, and it was a really positive change at the time, and I feel quite proud that we did it, but it was a hard thing to do. But now I look, and there's only a handful of riders that are using women in that way now. Mm-hmm. because I think they realised that it was a cheap shot and you mm-hmm. can't do that and you need to be more respectful and more inclusive and more understanding about you know, female body types and how people feel on the beach and confidence levels and being welcoming and coming back to that community that we're all trying to create where people feel that they can be involved and it doesn't matter who you are or what you look like or yeah. what you're doing, come down the beach and have fun because that's what we're all there for. Yeah, totally. And it is a fine line because there are certainly people and pro riders and non-pro riders, females, that still still use their bodies to market themselves. Yeah. I mean, but look at Alana Blanchard. She's built her whole professional surfer, her whole career on looking amazing in a bikini. She's a phenomenal surfer, but she uses the assets she has as well. So, and I don't want to hate on that because each person has their own thing, but I just want to show more. And so I've taken a stance um, and I wrote an article on this in, in Kite World that instead of just saying what you don't want to see, show what you do want to see. And so instead of hating on women that perhaps are, are showing a lot of booty in their videos or doing what to get the clicks, if that's how you feel, don't hate on that, but just show rather and promote the women that are doing it the, the way that you do like. So instead of hating on the negativity is to uplift the positive things that you like to see. But yeah, there, there definitely is an argument for, well, she's doing great and she's built her career on that, so why can't I? But for me, it's, yeah, just showing that it's inclusive and accessible. Yeah, I mean, we had, the, I think the, the wording around the ruling was we would no longer have um, sexualized women in kite videos that weren't doing anything. Mm-hmm. If you're wearing a bikini and you're ripping, yeah. great. If you're wearing a bikini and you're crap at kiting, yeah. great. Yeah. But if you're just standing there waving at the boys, yeah. like, no, we're not going to share said. that. Because it's like, what's that showing young women coming exactly. into the sport? That you're just meant to be on the beach waving at the boys. Yeah. You can't actually be included in the sport. So, yeah, I think it's a difficult thing. And that brings us on nicely because we've mentioned it a few times. Obviously, you've got your bikini company. And you mentioned that that started really early in your kiteboarding career. And my understanding of it, it was born out of a necessity, right? Mm -hmm. That you were sort of wiping out. (laughs) And then you're like, hang on, what's going on? So what was the the story behind it? Was it some, because, you know, I know from my own experience, setting up a business is a daunting scary process and it's not something that we're generally taught at school i mean okay you can go and do business studies or something like that and i did business studies at school but i wouldn't really say anything that i learned when i was at school helped me when i actually took the leap off the bridge and set up my own business so how was it for you yeah it's funny because my one of my best friends from college went and got her mba and at that time she was doing her mba i was running my business starting my business and we would chat and i'd be like I'm doing the same exact thing you're doing, Evelyn, but I'm doing it in the real world. Yeah, I'm actually doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm doing it. So I feel like I have an MBA now, which is great. But I launched the company out of necessity, as you said. And I first, I've always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And actually, I have to admit that being a pro kiteboarder wasn't like something that I was aspiring towards. Because when I first started kiteboarding, I was like, okay, I'm not that good. I'm, yeah. I'm just starting. I'm keen on writing. I can, yeah, I, you know, I can yeah. be around. I can get the stories. I can be yeah. in the scene and I can have that as a role. Exactly. But it wasn't like, I want to be the best kiteboarder and, you know, do this. So I was starting my bikini company because at Real, like my first season of coaching, I kind of had this in my mind because I was, I was in a 
my bikini every single day. It was under my board short and t-shirts. And whether that be coaching or riding or surfing, I was in a bikini all the time. And I just quickly grew tired of what was on the market because it was stuff at that time was really women market towards women lying on the beach. And it yeah. was just this idea that not that women aren't active, but that's kind of was all that was out there with like the Roxy's and the Billabongs of the world. It was very much. And it was all kind of expensive stuff as well, yeah. you know, and you're paying a lot of money for something that isn't that practical. Exactly. And they haven't really thought about what you want to do in it. It's yeah. just, you lie there, put sun cream on and that's it. It just looks cute. Which yeah. I'm like, okay, well, great. I want to look great in my bikini. I want it to be beautiful, but I want it to be really functional. And so at that time, it was kind of one or the other. I didn't find this fusion of both. And now brands have caught on to that, and there are a lot more options on the market. But at that time, it was really limited. And so I had a couple mentors at Real. My second season out there, I was really like, okay, well, I know I don't want to be a kite coach forever. And as I mentioned, I've always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And this was just something I saw as a need in the marketplace. I'm like, for sure other women feel this way. And then I started kind of mentioning it to people. And as soon as I had said, I'm going to start a bikini company, it was like, whoa, all right, hold the horses. Now I got to do it because I said it. Yeah, it's <laughs> so it was out. for me a very much a commitment, a verbal commitment. And from that point, on, I was like, okay, well, now I just got to figure it out. And yeah. It's been a huge learning process, and I was so naive at the time, but looking back, it's just really laughable stuff <laughs> that I did in the beginning. Because this is what, 2009? Or when? 2000. No, well, I sorry. started Kyvie in 2009, and I launched the brand in 2012. So this is probably okay, 2010 so 11. 2010 11, so around that sort of time. So yeah. it's super early, and you're just like, yeah. right, how am I going to make this happen? Yeah. And, and how, I mean, there's, you know, there's a, starting an internet business is quite easy. Because, you know, you just mm. need the internet and you can sit at home and you can make things happen. And I was really lucky. I have my brother who's a tech genius mm. who does all our technology. But, you know, you're talking about supply chains, product, um, marketing, shipping, distribution. Like there's a lot that goes into physically making something and then getting it to an end consumer. Had you got any experience in that at all? <laughs> no, no. And remember, I went to the school for communication. So yeah. actually, when I graduated high school, I wanted to go into aeronautical engineering. Why? We don't know. <laughs> I pretended that's what I wanted to do. So I went to a really science-heavy school, but then got there and was like, whoa, no, 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 I'm way more social. And there wasn't a marketing major, and there really wasn't a business major. It was kind of either econ, economics, or communications. And so I was very much more drawn to the communications, but therefore I had no business background, no design background. Yeah, none of that stuff. Yeah. And it was just all a learning process and really what has helped me throughout is i've been very open to input and always being humble in i don't know nearly enough and still continue i mean we're always growing always learning and so it's i was talking to everybody and i was asking for help from anybody i could and just slowly started piecing things together i ordered my first fabrics from new york and um, found a woman in north carolina to sew up my first samples well, I, at that time, I was actually launching um, the Sunset Swim Charity Fashion Show, which happens at Real. Yep. That was the year before I officially launched my suits, but I put my first samples in there. So it was kind of a dual marketing yep. thing. And then um, from that show, someone was like, hey, I would love to photograph your bikini. And I was like, great. And he was an amazing photographer, this guy named Sam, who still lives on the Outer Banks. And so he did all my first photos for free. And then awesome. I found someone um, connection at Real, Lulu's husband Otto, and he built my website for like three hundred bucks. 
So like was slowly starting to piece together. I was like, okay, I need a website. Okay. And then it was the manufacturing piece. And that was the next big hurdle of, okay, where do I get these produced? And honestly, I almost didn't start a bikini company or just a manufacturing company because it's manufacturing. And I was very much conscious of, we don't really need more stuff in the world. Yeah, there's that whole social responsibility exactly. side of it. So that was something to overcome. But I thought I'd read all of Patagonia, Yvonne Chouinard, the founder's books and starting a responsible business. And he's been such an impactful leader in production and doing responsible, sustainable supply chain that I thought, okay, well, this isn't really happening in the swim world. And if I can do something similar where I set a precedent for how things are done and if I can make an impact in manufacturing, I, then if that's I can, a positive force for change. Yeah, totally. Else, yeah. If I can use that platform to spread that message, then then that's something I should pursue. So, I um, wanted to keep it made in the U.S. for that reason, and had actually come out to Hood River for kiteboard for cancer, and uh, it was my first time in Hood River, and was once again just chatting with people and talking to everybody could, and it got connected with um, a woman downtown Hood River who owns a shop called Malika. They do swimwear, and she connected me with my factory in Portland that does women swim. And they had small enough minimums that I could make like 12 pieces or something. So like oh, one. Oh, wow. So one, yeah, so yeah. you're not having so somebody enough. ordering 10,000 to say, yeah, oh, so like most can't move for all of this swimwear. Yeah. <laughs> you have to make 5,000. So I, the minimum, I think, was 12. So like each body style, I, I only had to make 12, which you do small, medium, large, there's only four of each. So it was still really intimidating because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm putting money into yeah, stock now. Like. Yeah, here we go. But that was really what enabled me to start is that I didn't have to spend that much to get going. And then I um, bootstrapped the whole thing. But I was really lucky in that I, one of my friend's dad, my good friend Rich Sabo, his dad actually gave me a little bit of seed money to start that first production run. Yeah. So really super lucky with that. It wasn't very much. It's a couple grand but at that time I mean that's just everything. enabled you to yeah, get that first order exactly, in because I was like ah. and how do you know how did you go with like the designing the product I mean you know the product you should probably say is like designed to stay mm-hmm. on you when you're doing active sports so it's not like your traditional bikini swimwear mm-hmm. that kind of stuff it's quite different so how did you know designs a whole another aspect of it like <laughs> Are you using CAD? Are you drawing pictures on a bit of paper? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, what are you doing? Yeah, the, you first, the first couple runs, I just drew pictures on paper. It was so bad. I'm not an artist either. <laughs> <laughs> like if someone asked me to draw a picture on a bit yeah. of paper, I would be terrible. Like. <laughs> and then I never sewed anything because I was like, okay, it's going to take me a long time to learn how to sew properly. Sewing stretch fabrics are very confusing. Yeah, very really tough. difficult. Yeah, and so I was like, okay, well, I think I'm just going to skip that step. Find someone else to do it. <laughs> Yeah, so I was just, I knew what I wanted to see because I, I knew what would work. And yeah. I kind of based up on of sports bras and um, made a very small, I think we had six tops, six bottoms, just one color line. And actually that first line, not everything was even designed to stay put. I had a bandeau top. I don't know if you know what that is. Yeah, just a little strip, I, Like a tube top, yeah. yeah. That does not work. Yeah. I, I was making an active wear bikini line. I put that in because I was like, well, I need to have a range yeah. of pieces. And then you're like, oh, one wipe out. That's yeah. brownie waste. Yeah. Yeah, wait, why? <laughs> I don't have to have offerings for everybody. We're making swimsuits for active women. So yeah, it was very, um, really rough, really rough. And then that whole process was just building out, learning, working with the factories. And like I said, I just got lucky with the factory that I worked with that they were really mellow and that I didn't have to have everything organized. And yeah, it took us a long time to get like the tech packs 
really set up right. And then slowly, slowly over the years, we've had people help with that. And actually later today, I'm doing a fit session with a woman that helped launch Victoria's Secret Swim. And so she's an expert in fit. So she's actually redoing all of my current tech packs because we're moving factories. So bringing in some more big guns and just figuring out <laughs> how be- what we need to do to make it successful and how best to move forward. And do you remember the first person that bought one of your bikinis? Oh, no. What? I know. You've got to remember terrible. the first person that was like, yeah, we're in. I don't remember. I do remember when I launched my website when we were in Maui. Yeah. Because we, we kind of went back and forth to Maui for a couple of years and... I d- it wasn't very quickly, but it was like the day after I launched, I sold one. And I was like, I sold one! And then I would go to the Haiku post office. I put a little heart sticker on the bikini and I would tip it off to the person. And then we moved back to North Carolina. And I remember traveling and having all my kite bags full of stuff, full of the first production run of bikinis. Because I guess, I mean, that's a difficult thing. Like we, we used to have t-shirts that we sold through the magazine. So it was just like, okay, we order a bunch of stock, mm-hmm. sits in Alex's bedroom on his shelf, and then he would post it up and package it off. But then when we started to want to travel a little bit more, it was like, well, we're going to Cabarete. They don't have a postal service. We're not going to be able to ship t-shirts. So mm-hmm. what did we do? So in, in effect, we just closed the shop mm. while we went because it's like, well, we can't. And that's not what our core focus of our business was. But I guess for you, you're traveling, but you've still got to fulfill orders and do things like that. So like you say, in the early days, you're just carrying stock around so you can post it whenever someone buys something. That's <laughs> That must have been fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and very quickly I was like, okay, it's very obvious what the first hire I need to make. It's not the first hire because I didn't Yeah, but like place, the things like, I need to make this yes, business scalable. <laughs> I want to keep traveling. At that time, I was just kind of starting my... It was going to Brazil for the first time, you know, just starting to really kiteboard a lot more. And was like, all right, ugh, I can't keep shipping these things. Yeah, this isn't <laughs> going to work. Yeah, it's not going to work. And so I found a fulfillment house in Portland that okay. they held the stock. And that was very much a crucial piece of... The jigsaw that yeah. makes it viable. So that's great. So you're getting everything manufactured in the US and then shipped mm-hmm. from just around the corner mm-hmm. from the factory as well. So that means you haven't got much... You're not shipping stuff in from China and then shipping it back out. And you know, no, you're we try and keep, keep it, it really local and sustainable. And actually, I don't know when this will be going live, but we're launching a um, Indiegogo on September 23rd because we're doing 100% recycled materials for 2020 and moving forward. <clears throat> so all the bikinis will be made from recycled plastic bottles and reclaimed fishing nets. Which, if you look at the data, are two of the biggest plastic pollutants in the oceans. Like, Fishing nets are just crazy. It's nuts. The fishing net problem yeah. is really big. So I just, I finally have been like, okay, we, we can no longer use virgin materials. It just doesn't make any sense. And so we're recommitting to an increased level of sustainability and transparency moving forward. And then um, my ultimate goal is to create a take back program with the old bikinis. So we can take those back and partner with someone that will make them into thread again. Yeah. And repurpose it's really trying it to close the loop on that. That's quite an interesting concept. I mean, these days you've got to be, you've got to be aware of your impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. I think at the very least, and then you've got to be, uh, also at the least, trying to do as much as you can mm-hmm. to reduce it wherever you can. Mm-hmm. And that's an important thing, I think, as well for buyers as well, because a lot mm-hmm. of people are shopping more more consciously now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's at that forefront. So if you're just like, oh yeah, we're not bothered. So it's good. I didn't know you had them all made in Portland locally, yeah. and still with the same people that made those initial. Bats yeah, well, or... actually, now we we have 
a couple of years ago, we transitioned to half and half, half in LA and then half in Portland. But now we're moving to a new factory in Salem, Oregon, so about two an hour south of Portland, because my girls in Portland are closing down. They don't want to sew anymore. They've been doing it for so long, and oh, it's yeah. a very small shop, um, so they're stopping. Yeah. But that's okay because we're, um, they're like I said, they're very small, and so it's a little bit better, bittersweet because I love working with them and been the, with them since the beginning, but. In order to scale, we're partnering with a, a really nice big factory and positioning a little bit better so that we can grow. Yeah. And, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges you've faced over the years that you've got the business to where it is now? You know, are there any sort of moments when you were like, oh, my God, I can't see this working? Oh, and All the time, really. Yeah, all yeah. Well, I'm asking from experience. Yeah. So, you know, you're like, God, what, well, you know, you sit there at Christmas, you go, are we going to be doing this in January? I know, <laughs> I know. It's so like that. It's so, they always use the analogy of a roller coaster with business, and it's so true. There's so many ups and downs. Definitely a few crucial moments stand out. One, just last year, I just had a huge snafu with my production. Well, actually, a number of years ago, we had a problem with our production and everything came out like a size and a half too small. So like the medium was really fit more like a small and then or an extra small. So everything was really tiny. And I think I'm still trying to get over that. of like people think the suits are so small. <laughs> but we had one run that just came out really tiny. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? These yeah. are baby bathing suits. Yeah. So that was a huge issue, but we just were transparent and just... Upfront about it yeah. and try and own it mm-hmm. as best you can. Yeah, and then just like, sorry, yep, fit small, maybe order a size up. Yeah. <laughs> and then last year, I just had a big issue um, just dealing with people. I've learned, the biggest lesson I've learned over the years is communication. And it's really be upfront with what you want, what the expectations are. You have this idea in your mind of just talking about bathing suits, how you want something to look. And of course, the other person on the other end that's making the samples doesn't know what's in your mind. And so I finally was learning that you need to just tell them as much as possible. Because I would have something in mind, think I communicated clearly, get the sample back and be like, what is this? This is not what I thought we were going to (laughs) do. And so just really communication is crucial to anything you're doing in business. And that's something that I learned again and again. So just always be really upfront with expectations are on both parties. Make sure both people are stoked. Know what the purpose is behind what you're doing and communicate as much as you can. Yeah, make it happen. And how many people do you employ now? Has it grown quite a bit from Well, we're still pretty small. (laughs) So actually, I don't have anybody full-time. I'm still the only full-time, but we have a bunch of part-time. So I have an accountant, a social media manager, customer service and shipping, and then kind of an all-hands-on-deck person, Victoria, that's been with me for about four years. She does customer service and sales. Her official title is Customer Service and Sales Ninja. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of everything. Because <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that was another thing I was going to ask you about is, you know, you've come from this communication background and a sporting background and sales, you know, is, is a big part of any business. And that's probably the, one of the hardest things, I think, to get right. I mean, what you've True. got the advantage of is you're creating a unique product at a time when there isn't a product out there. So you've got a USP right there, but you've still got to communicate that and turn... Mm-hmm. you know, your dream into getting girls on board and buying into your products. Mm-hmm. That's probably a really tricky thing to Yeah, master. it is all about storytelling. But also, I mean, the sales keep the business running. And so that was something I kind of had to learn also early on. I was like, very much not my wheelhouse sales, but I had to take ownership of that and be like, okay, I'm really great at sales. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take responsibility for this because it's not going to sell itself. And I'm the one that is believing in this product and believing in their story and need to communicate that with both our retailers 
and just people on the beach. And so that's been something that I feel like now, and especially in kiteboarding too, we're all in sales. We're all branding ourselves and, yeah. and selling ourselves to a certain extent. So uh, it's it's been something that I've had to be like, okay, I'm great at this. And we step up and, and do it. And it's okay to, to sell yourself. And have you had any good mentors along the way that have kind of helped you? Definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. I've had, in the beginning, there was a two women that I met through Real, Terry Peck and Isabella Jones, and they had both founded their own companies and were just completely instrumental in giving me business books and just helping with any questions at all and really were the ones that encouraged me to even take the leap and do it. Because I was like, uh, are you sure I can do this? And they're like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> Sometimes you need that positive motivation you though, do. right? Because there's a lot of people in this world where, you know, I... I sort of always coming up with ideas and I sometimes think, you know, this is a really good idea. I think I can make something of it and I'll bounce it off someone and they're like, what? Well, that's a shit idea, you know? And I'm like, it's not, it's a really good idea. You're just not visionary. <laughs> You're not yeah. as visionary as me, perhaps. So that's great that you had some people that were just like, yes, of course you can do it because yeah. inherently a lot of people, when you tell them something like that, like, no, don't be silly. You'll never, you yeah. know, there's that negative impact that a lot of people seem to put in and, and sometimes it's just a flippant comment comment that they make and they, you know, just say, and they don't even think anything of it, but it can be really damaging to your self-esteem and your self-belief in being able to do it. And I think that's a massive mm-hmm. important thing in business is just that self-belief that, yeah, I reckon we can make this work. So that's and, great that you have people. Yeah, and that's what we go back to, right? Just having the self-belief because you're going to have all these problems and things come up that you just need to build up your resilience towards and believe in what you're doing and the product that you're putting out there and the fact that you're able to make it happen because there's so many things that seem insurmountable but really one of my favorite quotes is by Marie Forleo and she just says everything is figure outable it's so true you're yeah. like, okay this seems like a big problem but there's some little way around this mountain and we can figure it out it's Alex and I my brother who run the business we all joke we're just solution producers you know there's a problem fun solution that's yeah. all you do and it, it, every week something will come up and we're like oh my god this is terrible it wasn't long ago we had the worst outage we've had for the website ever so our server company that we've been working with for what since 2006 when we pretty much started the business basically they'd grown we were their first big customer buying like 400 pounds worth of servers a month and they'd grown and grown and grown and we used to have direct content to contact the managing director where if we had a problem he'd fix it and then it was like oh now his staff are fixing it and then it was like oh now those staff staff are fixing it and then gradually it was like oh now it's farmed out to India for customer services so you're speaking to some guy in India who has no idea of your needs or wants or what you're trying to do and then they're fixing it and we kind of just put up with it because Alex was really good at fixing it but he had to tell him how to fix it and then yeah this one day they just completely lost all our data and lost the whole website and lost everything. And for 36 hours, they wouldn't give us access to it. And at one point no I was gonna way. drive to where the company was based with a sledgehammer and start smashing things up unless we got it back. Because we were we were sort of thinking, well, if you've got our data, you'll give it to us. So I was like, I think they've just wiped all the files and corrupted everything, which would have been the end of IK Surf Mag because that would be all of your links, all of your content, you know, oh. since 2006, all the tests, all the stories, everything just gone. Luckily, they found it after 36 hours, and then we've since, uh, we were really upset with them at the time, but obviously they still have it all, and they're still hosting it all, so you can't shout and scream at them, because they might just go, you know what, sodgy guys, we're pulling the plug. So we had to be really like, oh yeah, we totally understand, it's fine, but then in the background, we were busy setting up a whole new server system, which we now run through Amazon, which is, you know, triple backed up, and that system was meant to be 
triple backed yeah. up, but they just messed up. Wow. So sometimes you're at the real mercy of people yeah. and it's just like that curveball that comes along, yeah. like, you know, oh, they've made everything the wrong size. You know, it's like, oh, how do we deal with that? Yeah. But you've got to own the problem, yeah. overcome it and move forwards. Otherwise, you just get stuck and yeah. you can't go anywhere. Because you could just blame them and be like, oh, come on. Yeah, we could just sit back and go, oh, well, that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, you're still, you've got to find a solution yeah. to it. They're not going to fix it. You know, it's quite yeah. apparent that they are no longer going to fix this problem. We've got to get in there and sort it out. So it's different. But that's interesting to hear the sort of the journey that you've been on yeah. with the bikini company. Whew. And yeah. then at the same time, you know, how is it managing your professional career? Because, yeah. you know, you're starting to do competitions, but then all of a sudden you're, you know, one of the most popular female kiteboarders in the world <laughs> for, a, you know, and one of the most well-known and you've, yeah. you know, podiumed at heaps of events and done really well and really led the way for women in wake style riding. Probably mm -hmm. you and Colleen, you know, have done immeasurable amounts of good for that side of the sport. So. Yeah. And that's definitely where my passion has been. I mean, I'm, I love kiteboarding. And so when I was launching my business and not really thinking, oh, pro kiteboarding is the route that I'm going down, but just was kiteboarding so much and kept pursuing it and at that time there weren't that many women doing wake style riding and so it was I don't want to say it was easy to start competing because it wasn't but it was very much okay if you're willing to try and and work on it um and which I was because that was what I was passionate about so living in North Carolina I was just riding the sliders a lot and I was like okay well I should try and compete because I'm kind of going to once again kick myself if I don't. And play. you're competitive. Yeah, I'm competitive. <laughs> so I, I'm, I am good enough to, to be there and be competing. And actually the first Triple S that I got in was, it wasn't a, um, they, they let everybody in. <laughs> they had the wild card. So I submitted a wild card. Colleen actually won that wild card that year. So that was the first year we both got in in the same year. And they... We, I don't remember who else was in the women's field at that time, but Col Claire Lutz, Paula Rosales, and I had all put in wildcard videos, and we were all there at the event. And same thing for the men. There were a couple men that were there that they, they let. I think Craig Cunningham had won the wildcard, and then they ended up letting, or maybe he was one of the ones that, anyway, they yeah. let in a bunch of us. Because like, okay, Club these riders are, are here. Yeah, it's Let's open. Let's just make it happen. Yeah, and so then I was like, okay, well, I started competing on it. And I can't remember what I did that year, but I think I got on the podium. I think maybe third in sliders. And anyway, it was just like, okay, yeah, well, I am good enough to be here. And now I want to do well, so I want to put in a, more effort to working on tricks than competing. And um, Colleen and I were traveling together and, and both pushing each other. And so it was kind of like happened a bit naturally in that this was an opportunity that I saw and that I took advantage of and, and pushed the sport how I wanted to see it. But yeah, growing the business at the same time, it was always being like, whoa, I've got a lot split going on. Really split between the two, which works because I was building up my name kiteboarding that enabled me to build up the company. I mean, really we got our foothold within kiteboarding. And so that was totally crucial. But hard. also hard. Yeah. <laughs> also hard. And I think that sometimes I would think that, oh, if I were focusing on one or the other, I would do better. And that would be kind of a, a limiting belief that I would have. I'd be like, oh, well, if I wasn't competing, I could focus all my energy on building the business. Or if I didn't have this business, I could just be a pro competing rider. And yeah, right and I would be winning everything. And, yeah. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> so that was something that I had to really 
think, well, no, you know, it's my priority and it's my choice and I want to do both. So why can't I, why can't I do both? Yeah. And just because it's unusual and something that is hard and takes time, um, if I can manage my time well and have the priorities where you're being effective, they kind of say the same thing when women have um, children and they are running their own businesses. I've heard a lot of women's podcasts about this where they're just like, you get really effective with your time and you really eliminate what is going to move yeah. the needle and what's not. Anything that is extracurricular that is wasting time is gone. Yeah. Like, so sometimes I can, I can it to that to where you're just having to be really focused both on the water and in the business. And when I'm going out in session, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to use this time and I want to try and work on this thing. And that's, and as the kiteboarding has in Wake Dog gotten prize money and we've um, been doing our formats, you had to be more strategic with your riding in order to place. And so that's kind of been natural progression of, okay, now I need to be strategic in my time in the water. But then stuff happens and you're not landing what you want to land or what the game plan is in your head. And then you're like, okay, I need to do something else because it has to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's not fun. Uh... Yeah. Once it turns into a job and just training and beating yeah. yourself up and then you're just like, yeah, hang on a minute. Mm -hmm. We all got into this because we enjoy it and we're mm -hmm. passionate about it and we love it. And it's easy. It's really easy to forget that sometimes, Yeah. you know, and just but... get bogged down with it. It and certainly it... is. It certainly is a job. And then they kind of like, oh yeah, pro kiteboarding is amazing, super fun. But much more where you're sitting eight hours in eight hours in an office. If you're sitting for eight hours in your wetsuit during a competition or on a photo shoot, that can feel equally as exhausting. I'm like, okay, now this is a job. Yeah, yeah, for but, sure. And I think there's, you know, the whole running the business and keeping up a pro kiteboarding career. You know, I often think all the things that we get involved with and the projects we turn our hand to, and then you sort of look at some of the riders and you're like, man, you're just getting paid just to go kiting. Like, yeah. do you realize how lucky you yeah. are just because you're just, you're making, obviously making enough money through sponsorship deals or helpful parents or whatever, but you're just getting paid to go kiteboarding. Like, you know, at some point that bubble's going to burst and you're mm -hmm. going to be like, oh damn, you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot more to do. So I can appreciate how having to run the business and split the time between that, but equally then sometimes feeling that, oh, what if, I was mm. just doing one or just doing the mm -hmm. other. Would it be better? You know, if we were just focusing on this, if we we're just focusing on that, we'll be able to achieve a lot more. But I think when you were talking about um, yourself and Colleen, when you were riding together at that time, you know, I think, you know, kudos, you did an immeasurable amount for women's kiteboarding because the videos that you brought out of Brazil and stuff like that were, you know, totally inspiring. And I remember, I can't remember what year it was, but I remember seeing like a triple S video of the top three girls riding and I was like it made me literally made me sit up on my computer and go holy shit they're they're shredding like yeah. you know it's not just oh and here are the girls hitting the kickers yeah. and the sliders and they're kind of you know doing okay and it's pretty basic it was like they are looking legitimately yeah. on it and I think you girls did a lot for raising that level of female kiteboard in that sport and now you look at it you know it's insane yeah. what's yeah, going on it's like insane. absolutely level, insane yeah has just completely gone through the roof which is so awesome because yeah for a long time we really had to prove ourselves too with the i mean riding with the boys and kind of Susie and lulu and the women before us did a great job of pioneering that category but then it really kind of fell to us to really build it up and say okay we're just as good as the boys or we should be acknowledged as no we can't do the same tricks you guys can do but we're coming from way behind here yeah yeah, yeah. and coming from not, <laughs> not having anyone really kind of pushing it to that next level so give us a little bit of time and i think we've proved that now yeah we're 
I think it used to be where very much men are coming in and like, oh, I'm just as good as the girls. Maybe I should compete in the girls category. Now it's like, well, actually, no, you can't even compete in the girls category because you're way better than than you are. And so I think it's just really been cool to see Anna Luce and Carolina and Katie Potter who took third. And she doesn't even, um, she rides a lot of cable, but just not even a pro rider as much as the rest and really just putting in the time and effort and one person's building it on the other. So one person lands something and you're like, okay, and that makes it accessible. And you see the other girls doing that and you can actually build on those tricks. So that's been really cool to see over the last couple of years, the progression really building on one another and, and stepping it up. Mm-hmm. And you're taking that into, um, you're taking that into a sort of another realm with the coaching as well, because you and Kalina sort of, you know, sharing that passion and trying to pushing that out there. So yeah. how's that been going? And, is yeah. it something that you enjoy? Because it's a whole nother dynamic to yeah. then become a coach. You know, that's, yeah. I guess, from when you were coaching at um, Real, you've got the skills and the personal skills mm-hmm. of, of teaching and stuff like that. But then, you know, I'm a pro kite boarder, I'm a coach, and I'm running my business. Yeah. There's like a lot of hats going on at the moment. So we actually started another business, Colleen and I, for running our women's kite camps. And the purpose of starting it was we had both done women's kite camps before we obviously both been kite coaches before and we both enjoyed that dynamic and we really saw that there wasn't so much a, an intermediate community of women's kiteboarding it was like okay there's tons of resources for beginners and getting into kiteboarding but then kind of building up your community and building off of one another and just as i said with the women in park riding you see someone do it and makes it accessible to you we really wanted to create that same thing with boosting and jumping in kind of the intermediate kiteboarding arena of let's get women together, show one another doing awesome things. And it's really an empowering community. We just find that women kiting together, it's a lot less ego when, than when men are involved and, um, a lot less bravado and more just like, Oh wow, you're awesome. No, you're awesome. Oh, you can do it. And just really uplifting. And so we don't, say that co-ed camps are bad or that we shouldn't because we might do co-ed camps eventually, but we just find the camaraderie of the all women's to be really awesome. And so we wanted to share our knowledge and share our confidence building techniques and self-belief techniques. Things that you've learned over the years of how to deal with all of Mm -hmm. these pressures. Because I think that it's still an inhibition for women kiteboarding is there. I think it's still a confidence thing. It seems really intimidating and we want to give them the safe spot to try um us being there so they feel good about trying whatever the new thing they want to try and then this the confidence and the encouragement to actually try something new and we find that to be on these week-long coaching retreats when's the next one in october 12th through 19th in dakla good plug (laughs) (laughs) sensi i know you've got to um get on because you've got some bikini fittings so i'm gonna wrap things up there but i highly recommend any female riders listening check out sensi and colleen's camps because they look like awesome fun and i know both ladies are very talented riders and coaches and i'm sure you'd learn a lot sensi thank Thank you very much indeed that was awesome yeah that was super fun there we have it episode six in the bag i really enjoyed that chat with sensi it was quite entertaining to sit down in hood river and chat to her and what i really liked was her discussing the business aspect of things as well because that's obviously something that's close to my own heart running my own business um hopefully it gave you some inspiration and ideas as well 
Anyway, I'll be back this time next week. Honestly, I promise I'm not just going to come back next week with some sorry excuse in 10 weeks time as to why I was delayed again. Um, but I've got the podcast almost ready to go. I just have to push the button to share it. I'm going to let this one breathe for a little while first rather than publish two on the same day. Anyway, you've been listening to me, Rue Chater, and the Intriguing Beings podcast. Have a fantastic week. <laughs>